Welcome to Focus Culture, a series from Evernote about how organized passion and creative thinking lead to great things. This is episode two, and I'm your host, Forrest Bryant. It's one thing to say something is important. Actually doing it, that's something else. Too often, the things we want to focus on get buried in the unending swirl of life. There's always more email to read, more projects to start, more demands on our personal and professional time. Meanwhile, the news cycle and social media updates keep on coming, 24-7. It's just too much. If we want today to truly matter, the things we do today must matter. If we want to feel pride and satisfaction in our lives, we have to clear the clutter and make the time to focus. But how? John Zaratsky has a potential solution. Along with his colleague Jake Knapp, John has spent the past few years applying design thinking to the problem of time. Operating as the time dorks, John and Jake have experimented, tweaked, and crowdsourced their way to redesigning their days. Their system is fully explained in a book called, appropriately enough, Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. I spoke with John Zaratsky to find out just where our time is going and how we can regain control. Because time flies, especially when we need to focus. So John Zaratsky, thank you so much for taking a little time to chat. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. I have very much enjoyed the book that you co-authored with Jake Knapp called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. This is out from Currency Books. Now, you're not a self-help guru by trade. You uh, started out <laughs> as a product designer, right? That's right. Yeah. Jake and I both worked as designers in the tech industry for about 15 years. Most of our time at Google, uh, I worked at some startups before that, and Jake also worked at, uh, at Microsoft and a couple other companies. So how does a product designer from Google or elsewhere in the tech industry pivot to this topic of making time to focus on what matters? What, what were your journeys? Well, we wanted to write a book that was for people who never quite seemed to have the time for the things that they want to do. And I always kind of felt a little bit distracted and a little bit too busy and a little bit too stressed out uh, because we were those people. I think working in technology, uh, which we both went into that field because we really, we loved it and we loved that work. And I think in many ways we still do, but we, we got an, a really interesting perspective. One part of it was that we sort of saw behind the scenes on how a lot of the really distracting technologies are made. Things like YouTube, which I helped to design, and, and Gmail, which, which Jake helped to design. So we saw and, and we began to understand just why those things are so distracting and so difficult to control. But at the same time, we were also at the sort of the epicenter of a corporate culture and a part of our society that is really obsessed with productivity, with being always connected, always online, valuing responsiveness to other people's requests or demands over the things that we want. And so we just felt like we had a, a unique perspective. And then, you know, we both had things that we wanted to do, things at work that we wanted to prioritize, we wanted to make time for, but also things in our personal lives. And so Jake and I began experimenting with this stuff a long time ago. And then once we met, we started experimenting together and eventually realized that we had kind of a framework or a, a philosophy that we could share with people that we thought could help them too. Yeah. And there was sort of an element of crowdsourcing in this too, wasn't there? Yeah, there definitely was. So Jake and I first met at Google Ventures, which is a VC firm that's funded by Google. 
And in that role, we both were working with the startups that Google Ventures had invested in. So after we made an investment, Jake and I would sort of go in like consultants and help them out, try to use our backgrounds as designers and writers to help these companies succeed. And in doing that work, we created this thing called a design sprint, which is a five-day recipe for teams who are starting something new. It allows them to sort of clear away a lot of the defaults of back-to-back meetings and nonstop email and trying to do everything at once and focus on one really, really important project and figure out if they're on the right track before they spend months or years of time executing on it, before they commit to it. So we began to experiment with some of our ideas about how to improve focus and how to resist distraction in that environment. You know, we were running these design sprints, and so we were able to kind of create the environment, create the rules, create the constraints. And that was one of the ways that we sort of crowdsourced what ended up in the book. But another way was through the writing that we've been doing. We started a newsletter called Time Dorks a few years ago, and we've shared lots of different experiments. As the name suggests, dorky experiments, kind of sometimes <laughs> uh, wacky or zany things that we had tried and started to put them out in the world, you know, because we're designers and because we came from this background of wanting to test our ideas before committing to them, we figured that we ought to test our own ideas about making better use of our time with other people before we committed to writing a whole book dedicated to sharing those things. Yeah. So I I find the whole design sprint concept very interesting. So in addition to, as you said, taking a week to focus on this one problem, you also break it down so that each day within that week is dedicated to one specific piece of the problem so that everyone's just thinking in this very sort of methodical way through it and then coming together again as a team to sort of decide on the best solution and then building it and actually you know testing it. So I find that a really interesting approach. And how directly does this make time concept derive from the design sprints concept? The make time framework is philosophically very much based on what we learned from design sprints, mm-hmm. but, but there are also some big differences. Um, for example, one of the things that we saw very clearly when we were running sprints was what a huge change it meant for people to work without devices, to work without the distractions of wanting to make sure that they were on top of their email and that they were paying attention to their messaging system, but to clear out some time to be able to really think and work through things in a sort of a quiet way. We also saw the power of focusing on one thing at a time. I think often when people are faced with a big project, when there's a lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainty, it can be very paralyzing. And I think it can lead us to procrastinating by doing administrative work that's not very important or trying to get the system set up or try to get some certain process into place before we can really get down to work. And with the design sprint, by breaking down the process of prototyping and testing a new idea into that recipe, we could kind of take people through focusing on one thing at a time and not trying to do it all at once. And so those were some of the philosophies that became a part of the make time framework. But there are some big differences. And one of the biggest is that the design sprint is very prescriptive. It is a recipe. It's a very specific set of steps that we encourage teams to follow. It's sort of like a recipe for baking a cake, you know, it's a, or, or making any kind of food, really. Um, once you are a pro 
you can go off script and you can start to improvise. <laughs> but really, you know, for best results, the first time through, you should follow the recipe. But make time is more like a cookbook. It's more like a collection of recipes hmm. um, with no assumption or no expectation that anybody's going to do all the recipes, but that they're going to sort of flip through. They're going to hopefully absorb the basic philosophy, which is about being clear about what you want to make time for, and then looking for places to reclaim that time. And then using the recipes in the book, which we call tactics, there's very concrete, simple changes that people can make, using those to make it happen, to actually make time. Right. So moving from that team solution to the individual solution where everybody is so completely different. As you say, there is no single recipe that's going to work for every individual. But this is certainly not by any means a solution in search of a problem, right? You identify two huge problems that stand in the way of pretty much all of us in trying to focus on the things that really matter to us. We're seesawing every day between endless tasks and endless distractions, right? And it's almost like the myth of the hydra, right? You cut off one head and two more spring up in its place. Uh, so let's talk about those two pieces, the endless tasks and the endless distraction, or as you call them, the busy bandwagon and the <laughs> infinity pool. Right, yeah. And we really do, we sort of ping pong between these things. You know, at work, we struggle to keep on top of our messages and make it to all of our meetings and then hopefully find enough little gaps between meetings <laughs> where we can actually do our work, you know, the real work that we're being paid to do and hopefully that we're excited about doing. But all that busyness, all that trying to stay on top of things can be sort of exhausting, you know, it can kind of wear us out. And so when we're ready for a break, we we bounce over to our smartphones often or to a, a new tab on our computer and we open up something like Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or even the news or the stock market mm -hmm. or ESPN to see what's going on. And we're looking for a break, but really we're just continuing in this kind of frazzled, reactive state of mind where we're bombarding ourselves with information rather than truly giving ourselves time to step away and to recharge and to think about what is important to us. When Jake and I started working on this book, we realized that most of our time is spent by default. It's not a series of deliberate choices. Mm. And when I say us, I truly do mean the two of us because we're by no means perfect. But I also mean sort of the broader us, you know, 21st century professionals, people trying to do their best and make the best use of their time. But we're not making a series of deliberate choices. We're really reacting to the default behaviors and kind of going on autopilot in a lot of ways. N nobody ever you know, wakes up in the morning and says, today I want to spend three hours staring at my phone. <laughs> Yet, statistically, that is exactly what we do. And so a lot of our advice really is about encouraging people and then helping people to identify those defaults and then to change them, to create new defaults that put our time first and our priorities first and put us back in control of our own attention and our own energy. Yeah, there was a line in the book that stopped me cold, uh, where you point out that if you combine the four plus hours the average American spends looking at their smartphone with the four plus hours they spend watching TV, distraction is a full-time job. Yes. And I think it's a perfect example of how powerful these defaults are, because each one of those 
individual things, you know, the quick check of your phone that turns into a half hour session or the, you know, the TV in the corner of the living room that you think, oh, I'll just, you know, I'll turn on the game or like, let's, let's just see if there's anything interesting on Netflix. Each one of those behaviors, those default behaviors aren't so bad. You know, there's nothing really inherently bad about them and they don't take up a lot of time, but when you see the stats about the number of hours that we all spend interacting with these kinds of products and services, it becomes clear just how powerful those defaults are. The fact that it does add up to two, three, four hours. And then, you know, when you look across all of the different media and devices, really for on average, about eight hours a day. Mm -hmm. And these two things together, this culture of busyness and uh, always having your calendar full and these infinity pools of these endlessly renewing sources of distraction together leave the bulk of our time out of our own personal control. Other people are controlling them. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we really from the moment we wake up, if we grab our phone and we look at our email or we look at the news or we look at Twitter, we're basically asking the world to tell us how we should feel. We're asking the world to tell us how we should be spending our time, what we should pay attention to. I think that's a mistake. I think that's really a missed opportunity for people, especially first thing in the morning, to take control of their own time. One of the books that I read about 10 years ago when I was first kind of getting serious about this pursuit of making good use of time is called Wrapped. And it's by Winifred Gallagher. And Mm -hmm. it's a great book. The thesis of the book is that our experience of life is not determined by what happens to us, but by what we pay attention to. So bad things can happen to us. And if we choose to pay attention to other good things, you know, the bad things don't seem so bad or Mm -hmm. good things can be happening to us. But if we're obsessing over some detail that didn't go quite our way, we can be upset about it. We can be unfulfilled. And so for me, that responsibility really, um, and that, that opportunity to control our own experience of life starts with controlling our experience of what we pay attention to Mm. on our devices and and Mm. the information we consume and not just sort of giving that attention away, not just saying, hey world, what should I be looking at right now? But trying to be a little more deliberate about it. The book was wrapped. That's R-A-P-T, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Not wrapped as in a present. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the solution that you offer to this problem, it sounds pretty simple on its surface, but there's also a lot of nuance in there. So let's be more intentional. Let's be more deliberate. Pick a highlight at the beginning of every day and then focus like a laser on that highlight for a given period of time during the day. That sounds super simple, but when you actually sit down to try to think about how you might go about doing that, then you can be sort of at a loss. Let's start with this concept of a highlight. What do you think a highlight should be and maybe what should it not be? The idea behind the highlight is to choose one thing that you want to prioritize and protect in your day. The idea is sort of if you, if you look back at the end of the day and you think, what was the highlight of my day today? You know, what was something that was really great? The idea with the highlight is to always have an answer to that Mm. question, Mm -hmm. to, to choose to spend at least some part of your day on something that is 
very important or, or very satisfying or, or maybe just really fun, really enjoyable mm-hmm. for you, which really sets up the day to be successful. It sets you up to feel good about that day. I often feel like when I am diligent about setting a highlight and making time for that highlight, that the rest of the day is kind of gravy. You know, no matter what else happens, I always know there's that one good thing that I made time for. There are some rules of thumb that we provide in the book. One of them is to look for an activity that's between 60 to 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's not a little task on your to-do list, some document you need to review and then check it off and, and, you know, feel like a productive robot. But it's also not some big, you know, life-changing transformation or or goal that's going to take you forever to reach. It's something that's medium-sized that is big enough to feel worthwhile and feel like it was something important, but small enough that you you really can make time for it by spending less time reacting to devices and to media and less time being responsive to your email and to messaging at work. You can free up an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. And I think that when you do that, you have taken that idea from Winifred Gallagher, that idea from Wrapped of directing your attention, and you've made it an integral part of your day. Yeah. So there are two things in there that I think are really important. Uh, One, this notion that it's this highlight of your day, it's not necessarily the most urgent thing on your to-do list. It could be if that's what you choose to focus on, but it could just be something completely personal. And the other thing is this notion that it's not the only thing you do today. Yeah, It's in this middle ground between the two things that we tend to talk about all the time, which are tasks and to-do lists and big goals. Uh, But those things are important too, right? Sure. I think that the highlight is really a big part of this philosophy that we have that life happens every day. Life is the stuff that happens day by day, one day at a time. It's not the big goals or the projects that you'll get to someday. It's not the tiny little things that you're checking off your to-do list, but it's the things that you're prioritizing. And so while we all have tasks that we need to stay on top of and emails we need to respond to, and we all have dreams of things that we want to do someday, one of the things that I think can be so powerful about the highlight is that it gives you sort of a vehicle. It gives you a mechanism for prioritizing what's important to you and not in a grandiose, intimidating way, but in a way that's actually really doable. To give you an example from my own life, starting in 2017, my wife and I, we left our full-time jobs and we began uh, traveling aboard our sailboat. We moved aboard and then we spent about eight months sailing from San Francisco down the coast to Panama. And so that was obviously a big goal. That was something that we worked toward for a long time. But this idea of a highlight was really important to us as individuals and to the two of us as a couple preparing for this transition in life and preparing for this journey. And so we would use that time during the week and on the weekends to work on getting the boat ready or work on researching things we needed to know for the trip, ordering supplies that we needed. And it was a way to make sure that we were prioritizing the activities that were going to get us closer to that goal and be proactive about it and not just sort of pile it all on a to-do list and hope we got to it, but to really make sure that we were making time on a regular basis. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So... 
you're picking this highlight and it's going to be this thing that you're going to focus on today so that at the end of the day when someone asks what was the highlight of your day you have an answer and then tomorrow it's going to be a different highlight and the day after it might be a third highlight or it might be the same highlight repeated which is something else you mentioned in the book which i was sort of a revelation to me that it's okay to have the same highlight on multiple days <laughs> yeah yeah and, th- and that's very much in line with the um with you know the example i just shared about preparing for the sailing trip you know right. it's, uh, i think when you do have a big goal something you know you're working toward choosing the same highlight over and over can be a really effective way of making sure that you're building that activity into your day-to-day and now when you're actually going to sit down and try to do it this is when things get tough right life gets in the way I personally have a goal of building a daily creative writing habit and life always gets in the way. And sometimes things that are distractions don't look like distractions. They look like things that are essential or things that are helpful or things that are productive. You can fall into the habit or fall into the trap of constantly checking the news, for example. Um, And that's one that I personally fall into. I'm constantly on Twitter just seeing what the latest headline is so I can get angry about it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's time I'm not spending focusing. Yeah, I do think that the distractions that are the most difficult for us to get control of are the ones that live in that that sweet spot of distracting, but also sort of productive seeming, you know, sort of responsible seeming, like reading the news or email. You know, email is especially challenging in this way because it is something that we legitimately need to be doing to be effective in our jobs or in our personal lives. But when it's always open in its own browser window, or it's you know our phone is always checking email um, and always notifying us when there's a new message, it elevates the seeming importance of that email. Email is important, but it's not the most important thing. But the default behaviors that we have around checking it make it seem as though it's the most important thing. And that's just not the case. And our philosophy here is to create barriers to distraction. So designers like Jake and I have spent years and years making these apps as effortless and friction-free as possible, Mm -hmm. but it's relatively easy to add that friction back in. Something as simple as changing a password and logging out of Twitter on your computer, for example, or removing the email account from your phone, or moving the TV into a different room, or putting it inside a cabinet, or if you want to get a little bit more extreme about it, installing an app like Freedom that will block certain websites or adopting what Jake and I both do, which is the distraction-free phone, which is a phone that doesn't have any of these infinity pool apps on it. These are all ways that are really, really effective and really powerful for making it more difficult to get distracted. But they're quite easy to stick to because they take willpower out of the equation. You don't have to remember to be good every day. You don't have to remember Mm -hmm. to be strong, to resist, to not check. You make the one-time decision of removing email from your phone, and then it sort of becomes automatic. Instead of the autopilot default behavior of constantly checking, now you have a new default behavior of checking only when you decide to, only when it's the thing that you're doing on purpose. So the book is structured, as you say, like a cookbook, and there are a whole bunch of different tactics in here, over 80 different tactics to help you with specific stages of this cycle of finding a highlight, focusing in on it, energizing throughout the day so that you have the mental and and physical energy to focus on that habit and then reflecting at the end of the day. 
So you have all of these tactics and some of them will work for individuals and others won't. Nobody's going to be the same. One of the ones I tried, you mentioned the distraction-free phone. I read that and I thought, oh, come on, I, I will never make it more than 30 minutes without all of those apps on my phone. I tried it. I'm a few days into it and it's actually really pleasant. Cool. That's great. I think that your experience matches the experience that we've heard from from a lot of readers who have decided to try an experiment like distraction-free phone. And by the way, that's very much how we think of it is all of these things should be an experiment. And that's where the reflect step comes in. You know, we want people to pick something out, something that, like you said, sounds maybe a little bit challenging, a little bit scary, but also kind of exciting. Try it out and then reflect on it and see how it works for you. And we've heard from a lot of people who have tried things and there's kind of this feeling that some of these changes are weirdly easy after you make them. They sound mm -hmm. very hard, but because they're one-time changes, they're not everyday willpower type changes. They can be sort of strangely easy to flip the switch and then enjoy the benefits. Is there a specific tactic that you were skeptical about at first, but it really wound up helping you? I was actually quite afraid of trying the distraction-free phone myself. Jake started doing it before I did, and I think it took me almost a year before I tried it. Part of my experience with all this stuff is that I often don't believe that I have a problem with something until I try to solve what I don't necessarily believe is a problem and then realize just how bad it was. For example, Twitter is something that I used to really struggle with. You know, but in my mind, it wasn't really a problem. You know, I thought I can choose not to look at Twitter. And when I'm working on something that's really important, I, I don't look at it. I keep it put away. But I decided to try this experiment of logging out. And this is one of the tactics in the book where I actually changed my password and stored the password. It's a random string. I stored it away in a password manager app and mm -hmm. then logged out of Twitter. And so every time, I would go to twitter.com on my computer, I would see the login screen instead of seeing the feed. And just the experience of getting kind of hit in the face with that login screen every single time really made me realize how much time I was spending on Twitter. And it helped me become a lot more mindful and intentional about how I was using it. People can certainly, you know, now can use screen time or um, you know, it's on the, on the iPhone or, or Google's digital well-being to sort of keep track of these things themselves. And I would guess that most people would be surprised at just how much time they're spending by default, you know, spending in ways that are not necessarily intentional. So, you mentioned the importance of treating this as an experiment. You you pick up a tactic, you try it, uh, maybe it works, great. If it does, if it doesn't, then maybe you can tweak it or drop it or try some other tactic. Do you track this? Absolutely, yeah. One of the things that we suggest is using a specific set of questions to reflect each day. And we have a sample of that in the back of the book. And we have a couple different formats that you can download from the book website. But I definitely keep track of this every day. And it's very, very lightweight. It's not some elaborate journaling exercise. For me, it's really about reflecting on the parts of the day that I was happy with and then the parts I was not so happy with. And then asking myself, well, what can I do differently tomorrow? What concrete change 
can I make? And, you know, so for example, it might be something like I meant to wake up early and start working on drafting a new article, for example. But instead, I found myself just looking at Twitter a lot because there was there was something going on in the news. I might then think about, well, what can I do differently tomorrow? Can I um, maybe work in a different environment or in a different app or on a different device? Or maybe I can give myself a certain scheduled amount of time when I am actually going to look at Twitter. And I'm going to sort of clear the decks, so to speak, by, by kind of getting that off my mind and out of the way so that I can truly focus. Keeping track of what went well and what didn't go so well, and then using that as an opportunity to say, and what am I going to do differently about it tomorrow? That's really the essence of the reflect step. And that's what makes it effective. Just as one related anecdote, Jake and I have a friend who is a coach, sort of a professional coach for people. And she's been using make time with her clients. And one of them actually made an Excel spreadsheet where he tracks uh, these questions. He, he answers these reflect questions in an Excel spreadsheet. So he can actually see kind of the streak. He can see in a row, top to bottom, the track record of how things were going for him and how his tactics and his behaviors have changed over time. And and I haven't tried that yet, but I'm I'm quite intrigued by by that sort of more rigorous form of tracking. Even though just to be clear, that's that's absolutely not essential, but I do think it's it's kind of intriguing. Yeah, I do track in Evernote as well. Not rigorously, but top level tracking of how I'm doing with trying to build these new habits. And there's this other piece that we didn't really talk about. It's not so much a step in the process as an input to the process, which is this notion that to get the most out of your brain, you have to take care of your body as well. And that's a split that a lot of us create unnecessarily between taking care of our bodies and taking care of our brains. That split is reinforced in our society. You know, as we grow up, and as we, we go to college and enter the, the working world, we do things for our bodies and we do things with our brains, you know, so we might exercise or we might play a sport and that's for our body. And then, you know, we go to work and we do stuff with our brains and maybe we, we read books and, you know, we try to get smarter and, and better. Um, and that's for our brains, but there's a real connection when we are tired or we're not eating well, we're not getting exercise, we're not using our bodies, it's more difficult for us to make good use of our time. We're more likely to get distracted. Mm. We're more likely to fall back into that mindless way of spending time on things that, that aren't really important to us. And so Jake and I think it's really important that people are taking care of themselves. For example, one of the tactics that's made a huge, huge difference for me is the idea of making my bedroom into a bedroom, you know, a hmm. room for, for sleeping, which means no devices of, of any kind uh, apart from an alarm clock. And, and I actually have like a, an old school alarm clock that's got a couple buttons on top and a, a basic little digital display, but, um, but it's not connected to, to anything except for the wall outlet. And, and that's a, change to my physical environment that allows me to get much better sleep. Another one is a tactic that we call pound the pavement, which is really just about finding ways to walk, to incorporate a little bit of walking, which is sort of the most basic elemental human movement, uh, ways to incorporate that into our everyday by you know getting off the bus earlier, the train early, or parking a little further away. 
And so there's a bunch more tactics like that, but there are these really concrete, simple changes that we can try, and then we can see how they make us feel. Yeah, and it's true. I mentioned earlier that I'm trying to get better about creative writing, and I find that when I'm most creative is after I've taken a walk or found time to meditate or in some other way taken that break, that deliberate break from the culture of busyness and allowed myself to have that recharge moment. And then the ideas start to come. And I think everybody has had those experiences. Like you said, feeling frustrated and stuck and taking a walk and then just observing how your mind clears or that feeling of exercising and then, you know, kind of feeling clear headed and like, you've got to skip in your step, you know, like you're feeling good or you have a really heavy lunch and you feel sort of sluggish and tired and you want to curl up under your desk and take a nap at work. Everybody has experienced these things, but we don't always pay attention to them and we don't always use them as opportunities for making a change. We don't always go through that step of reflecting. So again, in that spirit of experimentation, one of the things that we really want to do is just encourage people to get into this habit of examining, of looking back on their days. And you know, maybe if they notice that they didn't have such a great afternoon and they, they didn't feel productive, they didn't feel focused, and making the connection to what they ate for lunch or the fact that they ate at their desk and they didn't get up and move around and trying to do something about that. I think if we can help people look at their days in that way, we can really help them start to take control and make better choices. Amazing. John Zareski, what was your chosen highlight for today? Oh, today my highlight was uh, actually recording this podcast. That was my highlight too. And <laughs> I can check it off. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, the book is called Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. You are the co-author along with Jake Knapp, who could not join us today. And the two of you also wrote another book about that design sprint process, right? Called Sprint. That's right. Yeah. So how do we find you guys? Well, if you want to learn more about Make Time, we have a website for the book. It's maketimebook.com. But the book itself is available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere books are sold. If you would like to see what I've got going on, what I'm up to, the writing that I'm doing and the speaking and events, perhaps ironically, I will suggest that you follow me on Twitter. My username is Jazzer, J-A-Z-E-R. And Mm. if I respond to you in less than 24 hours, it probably means that I'm falling prey to the infinity pool, but I do (laughs) see everything that people send to me and I try to I try to respond. I really like hearing from people and hearing about their experience. And if I may, Forrest, I wanted to add one additional little little story, which is sure. which is about, you know, you asked what my highlight for today was, which was recording this podcast. I'm actually out of town right now. I'm in Chicago. I'm staying with some friends and Chicago just had the first big snow of the season. So mm. we got a few inches of snow, which brought down a tree in my friend's backyard, which landed on the power line and partially cut power. And so this whole day I've been with my friends, we're trying to figure out how to get hot water and how to make sure the heat is on and do all these things and coordinating with the utility company and and having this block, this highlight, knowing that that's in my calendar, I think has, for me, it's actually been a really good reminder of, of why that's important because this could have been a day that just felt kind of a, annoying and stressful um, and feeling like, kind of the the day was happening to me instead of mm-hmm. uh, me being in charge. But but knowing that I had this one thing that I wanted to prioritize really gave me the sense that despite everything else that was going on, 
it was going to be a good day. And it has been. It's been a good day for me, too. Thanks again, John, for taking a little time. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. John Zaratsky is one half of The Time Dorks and co-author of the book Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day, published by Currency. During the interview, I mentioned that I track my highlights in Evernote, and before we end the episode, I wanted to share just how I do that. I have a special weekly dashboard note where I track what happens every week, and this note has three sections. At the top, there's a table. The columns are the days of the week, and the rows are the areas of responsibility where I need to focus on a regular basis. This podcast is one, managing my team is another, and I track personal areas of focus too. The rest of that table is all checkboxes. So when I've spent at least 30 minutes in a particular day focused on something, I check the box. Then looking at that table shows me, at a glance, where I've been spending my time this week and which areas I've been neglecting. The second section of my weekly dashboard is for those daily highlights John and I were just talking about. It's simply a list of my biggest priority for each day, with a checkbox to know if I succeeded in doing it. I can leave notes there too, but mostly I just want to know whether or not it happened. And then at the bottom of my dashboard note is my done list, and I love this. Whenever I complete a task, big or small, personal or professional, I add it to the done list. So to recap, when I open my dashboard, I can see, at a glance, where I've been spending my time, where I haven't spent enough time this week, how I'm doing on my daily highlights, and then a big list of all the things I've actually accomplished. It's a huge motivator. And best of all, I made a template out of this by selecting Save as Template from the Note menu on my Mac, so I don't have to waste any time rebuilding the dashboard every week. I can just create a new note, select Weekly Dashboard from my Personal Templates library, and I'm good to go. That's the tracking system that works for me, so hey, maybe it'll work for you too. Experiment. See for yourself. Oh, and one more thing. If you're looking to find some focus and motivation in 2019, you should know about the Ever Better Challenge. It's a free 30-day program designed to help you zero in on a simple, meaningful change and build the habits you need to get there, all through Evernote. It's never too late to start, so if you want to learn more, visit everbetterchallenge.com. That's everbetterchallenge.com. You've been listening to Focus Culture, produced by Evernote, the place to find your focus at work, at home, and everywhere in between. Get started for free at evernote.com. Download the Evernote app on your iOS or Android device, or look for us in the Windows Store or the Apple App Store. For more tips and stories from the Evernote team, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Medium. I'm Forrest Bryant. Our producer is Stacy Bailey, and our audio engineer is Jay Shilliday. Thanks to John Zaratsky for joining me in this episode, and thank you for listening. Until next time, stay focused.